Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss the Middle East and foreign policy is Daniel Kurtzer. Dan is the former U.S. ambassador to Egypt under President Clinton and the ambassador to Israel under President Bush. He is currently the S. Daniel Abraham Professor of Middle East Policy Studies at Princeton. He has studied the region for years and has published several books concerning the Middle East. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Elizabeth. At least for the past four elections, foreign policy in the Middle East has played a major role in American politics. Could you talk a little bit about how U.S. politics and elections have been impacted by the region? Well, every president uh, in the last 25 or 30 years has actually tried to extricate the United States from the Middle East, largely because each has seen the Middle East as providing for more problems for U.S. policy than solutions and successes. In the 90s, of course, uh, President Clinton experienced some of the upsides uh, in a peace process that at least was working, even if it didn't produce results. But after 9-11 and the now two endless wars in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, various uh, state failures in Yemen, uh, Syria, Libya, elsewhere, and problems particularly that uh, Iranian ambitions uh, have uh, caused in the region, you, you hear more and more about the idea of pivoting away from the Middle East. Of course, it's, a, it's an area of critical importance to the United States, and therefore no president has actually been able to pivot away but it hasn't been an area where presidents believe they can accomplish a great deal. Following up on that, based on your experience in diplomacy, is there a set of principles we should have when we're trying to decide whether to get involved in the region or not, or for that matter, get involved in any conflict overseas? Well, the first question that uh, a president needs to ask is exactly that one. What are the principles or the interests that should guide us, and how do they fit in the overall structure of uh, American uh, international and domestic policies. Uh, in the Middle East, up until a few years ago, there seemed to be a bipartisan support for a number of these principles. First, protecting the security and well-being of the state of Israel. Second, the pursuit of peace between Israel and its neighbors. Third, relations with moderate Arab states that would be beneficial mutually to both sides. Fourth, the uh, uh, security of oil and gas exports from the region. And fifth, trying to ensure that uh, external or internal challenges to regional stability uh, would be uh, met and dealt with. This has changed a bit over these past few years in that the dominance of the uh, Israel factor in American policy has in some ways crowded out some of the other areas of interest. Plus, the region itself has become much more challenging to deal with, especially after the failure of the so-called Arab Spring back in 2011 and, and uh, subsequently. So, you know, those, those foreign policy interests, in a sense, are still available for us to follow. And then the underlying question of values kicks in. Are we able as a country to project kinds of democratic and freedom values that would make sense in other areas of the world, including the Middle East. And I think that's also been challenged in these past few years. 
Um, that brings to mind really the situation in Syria, which almost seems like the polar opposite of how we've dealt with Iraq and and Afghanistan. Can you talk a little bit about how how Syria has factored into this equation, as particularly in the last four years? Sure. What's been interesting about Syria is that uh, it has never been a major target of American diplomacy or American policy. Throughout uh, the last 30 or 40 years, Syria was always an outlier in terms of American interests. During the Cold War, uh, Syria was very much aligned with the Soviet Union. Uh, Its internal policies were, were horrific. Going back to the 1980s, when the father of the current president, Hafez al Assad, killed upwards of 20,000 people in the city of Hama in order to quell disturbances. His son learned a great deal from that. He has killed multiple times that number of people to try to maintain control. So the issue for Syria has not really been how do we maintain a positive relationship, but the question, especially since 2011 and the outbreak of the Syrian civil war has been Number one, how do you contain that conflict and avoid spillover, both with regard to the possibility of violence, but also flow of refugees and displaced people, which has impacted Syria's immediate neighbors? Uh, And second of all, whether or not an outcome could be had that, on the one hand, changes enough of the regime to introduce a little bit more freedom and maybe a little bit more democratic governance but without opening the door to the kind of radical Islamic activities which we saw emerge in Libya once that government collapsed. So it's been a real challenge. Frankly, neither the Obama administration nor the Trump administration has done anything near an adequate job. And one of the keys to that has been finding some common language with Russia, and neither administration has done well in that regard either. So pivoting back to Israel that you had mentioned earlier, the Trump administration has enacted a few measures, and it's hard to tell sometimes whether that's for domestic politics or for foreign policy. But if you could talk a little bit about what the Trump administration has done in Israel, both in terms of relocating our embassy to Jerusalem, the most recent policy in terms of the United Arab Emirates. Can you talk a little bit about why you think the Trump administration has taken some of these actions? I think it's fair to say that almost everything the Trump administration has done, uh, both in the foreign policy area and the domestic policy area, has been done for political and electoral purposes at home. And the policy vis-a-vis Israel is not an exception. Trump has looked at two parts of his so-called base, evangelical Christians, and that part of the American Jewish community that supported him. He made some promises during the 2016 campaign in order to uh, satisfy that base, and uh, he has lived up to those promises, and in most respects is able to say to the uh, evangelical and, say, conservative Jewish voters that uh, he produced what they wanted him to produce. As you noted, moving the embassy of the United States to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, closing off the channels of communication to the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, cutting aid to the PLO, recognizing Israel's sovereignty in the Golan Heights, and so forth. The, the problem is that in meeting the demands of his, his base, 
he has uh, changed American policy towards the pursuit of peace, which I indicated earlier has always been a major element of U.S. interests in the region. He's changed that policy in a very challenging way. Uh, The plan that the Trump administration put out back in January of 2020 was a totally one-sided plan. It addressed all of Israel's requirements, including the possibility of Israel's annexing parts of the West Bank, Israel's not having to remove any settlements or withdraw any settlers, uh, having a possibility of a truncated Palestinian state that would not be contiguous. It was six disconnected islands or cantons, uh, each one of which would be surrounded by Israel, uh, and allowing Israel to be the determinant of when uh, elements of a Israeli PLO accord would kick in. In other words, Israel had to be satisfied that its requirements were met. And so the Trump administration, in catering to its base, and having turned its policies so much in favor of a right-wing Israeli government's viewpoint, really undercut the possibility of achieving a long-term peace settlement between Israel and the Palestinians. So what does this say about the the two-state solution? Is, is that never going to happen now? Or can it be resurrected at some point if we had a different administration with different policies? Most every pundit or analyst who looks at this issue has already proclaimed the death of the two-state solution for a lot of reasons, not just the Trump administration policies, but they also cite the fact that uh, Israeli settlements have grown, the number of settlers has grown, the extension of Israeli law on the ground has uh, advanced, and therefore, even if you get leaders on the Israeli and Palestinian side who want to uh, divorce and create a, a two-state solution, it would be uh, impossible in their view. My problem with that analysis is that I haven't seen a serious alternative to a two-state solution, and there really hasn't been one that's come forward for the last uh, almost 100 years, since the, 19, the 1930s, when the British mandatory authorities first came up with the idea of partition. That's been the idea that that seems to be the most realistic, and in the absence of any significant support for alternatives, is the one that both sides end up supporting. In fact, in one of my graduate workshops at Princeton a few years ago, I asked the students to take a hard look at alternatives to a two-state solution, and they did a, a really terrific job in trying to demonstrate that there were alternatives that could be acceptable to the two sides. And at the end of the semester, they threw up their hands and said, there isn't an alternative that would be acceptable to both. There's some that are acceptable to one or the other, but that the only possibility is a partition in which the two national movements can achieve self-determination and independence in at least part of the homeland that they consider to be theirs. So, of course, the Trump administration and certainly um, the Netanyahu administration seems to be taking these actions because they think it's bolstering Israel and helping its future. Do you think that's true? Or do you think in some ways they are, they've actually hurt the country in, in refusing to look at a two-state solution? In the short term, uh, I don't think Israel's security is, has been affected negatively. In fact, the Israeli economy continues to do quite well. We've just seen a breakthrough between uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates in which 
What's called normalization has taken place even in the absence of a deal between Israel and the Palestinians. Israel's international relations seem to be in relatively good shape. So it's hard to make an argument that the sum total of both the Trump administration's policies, but also this long-term failure to achieve a two-state solution has somehow hurt Israel. The problem is, or the question is what your time frame is. If your argument is, uh, you know, let's do things that are good for the next short period of time. Presidents, for example, have either four or eight year time frames. Israeli prime ministers have longer time frames and Arab rulers have even longer viewpoints uh, time frames. Over the long term, the absence of a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian question can only hurt the state of Israel because it's like a festering sore. You may control it for a while and you put some salve on it and a Band-Aid and it seems to be manageable, but it's there and it doesn't go away and uh, it erupts. So, you know, every few years there might be an, an outbreak of violence. Since 2006, for example, there have been four wars between Israel and Hamas in Gaza and an additional war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is attributable to other factors, but it tells you that, you know, this is this is more than what George Schultz used to call mowing the lawn. You know, Schultz argued that the large part of foreign policy is simply taking care of everyday business. Well, you know, wars are not everyday business, and a society that has to deal with this every few years is not really going to be a stable and secure society. And therefore, the pursuit of a two-state solution remains incredibly important. Should Biden win the election in November, can you talk a little bit about what you think a, a Biden administration approach would be to the region and how that might differ from what we've seen for the last four years? I think a fairly um, strong assessment would be uh, a two, at least a twofold focus. I think the primary focus of a Biden administration will be on Iran, because Iran does represent a security challenge uh, to the region and therefore to our allies in the region, and over the longer term, including a security threat to the United States, given Iran's uh, interest in acquiring a nuclear weapons capability and the ability to deliver uh, weapons over a long range uh, via its missile program. And I think that the Biden administration will try very hard to rebuild relations with the partners with whom the Obama administration negotiated the Iranian nuclear accord, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And uh, if that can be accomplished, then to re-engage with Iran to see if that agreement, the JCPOA, could be renewed. After all, whatever its weaknesses were, and there certainly were weaknesses in the agreement, it did stop the Iranian nuclear program in its tracks between 2015 and 2018 when the Trump administration pulled out. So at a minimum, it gave some breathing space for to see whether or not the Iranian policies and actions would change. I think that's going to be the highest priority is to try to tamp down the growing threat of uh, an Iranian breakout on the nuclear side and to try to deal with uh, malign Iranian activities in places like its support for Hezbollah, its activities and proxy activities in Lebanon uh, and uh, in Yemen. 
But secondarily, the Biden administration is likely to try to um, reverse some of the Trump administration's decisions vis-a-vis the peace process uh, in order to kind of get back to where we were. It's hard to assess that Biden will devote a lot of attention to this issue. It's frankly not ripe for resolution. As much as it's important that it be resolved, it's not really ripe. And therefore, given how uh, ambitious an agenda a Biden administration has to pursue on the domestic front, as well as the international front, it's hard to advise that administration to devote attention to the Palestine-Israel question. But there can be ways to uh, reverse or to normalize the situation. For example, you leave the American embassy in Jerusalem, but you also announce that you're ready to support a Palestinian uh, capital in Jerusalem once there is a two-state solution. You reopen your channels of communication to the Palestinians. You restore uh, some of your foreign assistance, both to the, the Palestinian Authority, as well as to the UN agency that deals with Palestinian refugees. In other words, you signal that this is administration that's going back to long-standing bipartisan American approach to the Arab-Israeli conflict and uh, rejecting the uh, highly partisan and one-sided approach that the Trump administration followed. So that brings me to my next question. You've served under both Republican and Democratic administrations in the region. And so I wonder, and you touched on this a little bit just now, but how much of the Trump policy has been an outlier or how much of it is really a continuation of GOP politics in the region? There are aspects in previous administrations of both elements of what Trump has done or failed to do. But uh, what, what Trump has, has uh, distinguished himself is with respect to how many pieces of crockery he has broken, both in the Middle East and elsewhere. We have allies that don't trust us anymore throughout the world, including in the Middle East, because of the uncertainty of what the administration wants to do. That, that level of uncertainty has grown exponentially uh, as opposed to previous administrations, which either followed what was seen to be good or bad policy, but at least it was more predictable. You had this long period of consistency, and then Trump simply cut the cord and decided to go in an entirely different direction. This discontinuity in American policy has been uh, most pronounced. To wrap up, per the name of our podcast, if if I'm a voter and Middle East policy is really my number one issue, what should I be thinking about before I go to vote in November? Well, I think for, for the broad cross-section of Americans who uh, indicate through polling that our relationship with Israel is important, they should weigh the views of the two candidates And I think they're going to find that there isn't that much difference. President Trump will trumpet his actions on behalf of Israel. Vice President Biden can trumpet his actions over a course of 35 years on behalf of Israel. Republicans and Democrats have been equally supportive, and that's unlikely to change. We're not going to see a major change with regard to either party's support for Israel. Now, these are big foreign policy issues. Frankly, as we know, You know, voters are particularly today going to be much more concerned about COVID-19 and about the economy and their jobs and the safety of their kids in school. But to the extent that there are any foreign policy voters out there who look at the Middle East, these would be the things to think about. 
Well, thank you so much. This was a really interesting and informative conversation. So thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Elizabeth. Thank you. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.